1: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey, before the show begins, I have to tell you about this amazing new app, but you guys may already know about it YouTube Music. They combine everything that you would expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube to bring everything to life. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. Get music wherever you want it, even if you're offline. Download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then, just pay $9.99 per month. Term and restrictions, of course, apply, but you don't need to be concerned about that because you'll be listening to incredible music with YouTube Music. Download that app now. It's amazing. Do it up. Now, here's the show. Hello, everybody. How are you doing this fine afternoon? or evening, or morning, or whatever time it is that you're listening to this, I hope you're well. I'm Ray Harkins. We're hanging out on a special series of this podcast called 100 Words or Less, but this, in particular, is kind of like a little offshoot, an imprint record label, as it were. This show is called Be Specific, and this is an idea I've been kicking around in my head for quite some time. I'll tell you more about it, and the guest, in a moment, but you are into bands right you like band merch you, sh- you should i love band merch i've got like i've never even counted the amount of band shirts that i have but i probably have over 365 so like i could wear a different shirt each day of the year uh, even if i dove into my you know archives that might be a little too small for me but you know it still works Rockabilia.com is your place where you can stock up and c- build your own collection of shirts and what's even cooler is during Halloween time, which is what we're experiencing now in October and the fall. They've got a ton of like, you know, sort of Halloween theme merch and costumes and masks from like Ghost, Iron Maiden, Misfits, Queen, Rob Zombie, you name it, they got it. And they also have, you know, some bands that are Halloween themed, as it were, like, you know, King Diamond, Misfits, Motionless and White. You get the deal. So go to rockabilly.com and use the code Jabberjaw. That will give you a 15% discount and you can order to your heart's content. It will ship to you fast. It will ship to you with friendly customer service. It will ship to you as an independent business because that's what it is. I love the company so much. They're just they're just great human beings. They are a professional company and they have so many options for you to buy band merch, okay? Rockabilly.com, PC Jabberjaw, the only place that you should be doing that, okay? Okay, good. But what am I here to tell you about is this idea of the show. So, you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm guessing. I do, too. I listen to, you know, uh, probably an inordinate amount. I would say 80% of my listening audio time is consumed with either audiobooks or podcasts. And the other 20% is records. And so, you know, I understand it's an imbalance, but, you know, that's just the way that life is. I am not listening to 80% music and 20% podcasts, but... That's neither here nor there, but I listen to a lot of uh, music-based podcasts, and I think the thing that I have been craving myself is, uh, you know, when people are talking about like sort of the music industry and the music business as a whole, a lot of the times people aren't specific, and, you know, I don't, I'm not talking about like specific as far as like, you know, being mean to people or like, you know, <laughs> like outing Um, you know, certain uh, bands that are, you know, not as cool as other bands or whatever. Like, I'm not looking for drama per se. I'm just looking for, like, actual numbers. Because, like, people are scared to talk about numbers and, like, money. Like, you know, things get weird when you kind of combine that and art and commerce and, like, how those things meet. And so I've had this idea kicking around in my head for a while. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to approach some friends who I, I trust and who I know will speak candidly to me about their experiences in the music industry and uh, that is exactly how this came together. So all during the month of October, I'm sharing you these conversations that are, are a little bit different than what you typically would hear on the, uh, you know, kind of quote-unquote regular episode of 100 Words or Less. This, uh, this is more directional. This is like speaking specifically about, you know, whether it's tours, whether it's about like management of bands, whether it's like working at record labels. And it's not just being like, oh, how do you put out records or like, you know, the sort of generic uh, kind of conversations you may have. These are definitely just like you know, get into the weeds in a way, and like not you get into the weeds where you like if you don't care about the music industry, will be lost. It's like, oh wow, I didn't know that a band got paid this much money to do a show or something like that. So I just think that that information should be shared, um, you know, freely. There should be transparency in that. It's like I don't think that there is any, um, there should be any misgivings on the pe- the idea that people make money off of independent music. That is a reality. You know, whether you're working at a record label and you're not making you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in independent music. Some people do, but that's not the common experience. So I just want to kind of you know, get that information out there and like get people comfortable about talking with that sort of stuff because I think a lot of people are really cagey and I just don't, uh, I've never understood that. Like if someone directly asks me, uh, and as long as it's an appropriate context, I will share pretty much any information that people ask me, you know, like, I'm not going to broadcast that publicly across the board, like unequivocally. But anyways, let's, let me let me bring this back. The guest is Shane told Shane is the lead singer of a band called Silverstein. He is also the host of an amazing podcast called Lead Singer Syndrome. I've been a guest on it, and uh, he just he does does a very similar thing to what Hundred Words is doing, except he focuses on lead singers, and he has very fun conversations on that. I really enjoy his show. So. I, I thought of Shane kind of immediately because I was like, "Well, he he's been doing this for a while." And Silverstein is is such an anomaly within the context of independent music because they have you know ridden through the trends, they have sonically changed over time, but not like changed to the point of where you don't even recognize the band. It's like no, they've just kind of morphed and, and evolved as you know adults do when they're writing music together, but. Shane was just a person that popped in my mind right away because he, um, you know, he's interested in the business side of things and has been navigating his band through that, and you know, all the rest of his members have been doing the same. So I was like, you know what? I want to talk to Shane about the business of being in a band. Like, what that looks like when things, you know, start to get real, when, like, the band all of a sudden is making, you know, $1,000 a night on a tour, and you have to think about, like, you know, we, we talk about sharing stories of, like, oh, yeah, like, what do you do when you have this much cash on you, and you're just rolling around in a van? Like, it's crazy, but that happens all the time. So, anyways, we get really specific, and he shares a lot of cool insights and stories about uh, the band's life that I think, even if you hate Silverstein, you will learn something from this, Okay. Anyways, long preamble, but I just wanted to kind of set the tone for the rest of the episodes. But uh, yeah, thank you very much, Shane. I really appreciate it. It was fun to do this with you. And now here is Be Specific, okay? And I'll talk to you after the episode is over. Set up the next episode. That's what we do here, okay? Okay.
2: You know, I think I'm a good person to have, uh, you know, uh, as a part of this, because I really don't care, right. you know, anyways, I'll like, I'll tell anyone anything. Like, what's the big deal? Yeah. What am I trying to hide, you know? Well, I uh,
1: you'd be, you'd be, you'd be, sh- you'd be surprised. Cause I think it's uh well, no, you wouldn't be surprised. You understand. But like, there are certain people where it's like, uh, and not like I went at a ton of people and they were like, no, I don't want to talk about that. But like, cause I, you know. You, like myself, like, you know, you got a good idea of what people would be good for something like this. But, uh, yeah, there are just some people that are just – anytime you talk about finances or anything like that, people just get weird. They feel they feel like they – I don't know. They, like, have some informational advantage over people or something. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, I totally, totally know what you mean. But I, I it's funny when you talk about these, these specific numbers. And I kind of smile to myself because I think of specific things. Like, I remember, you know – It's always tough when you're a new a new band on the road and you go out on a tour for a long period of time and you add up the money at the end and you go, Huh. (laughs) Like we we made way less than minimum wage per person for how long we were out here on the road, you know? Like way less money. Like we could have done I could have been a a paper boy at home and made way more bank, you know, and I, I love that. And I remember the first time Silverstein ever made money, we'd done a tour with From Modern to Ashes, and it was like kind of our first big support we ever got. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we were we were second of five, and that led in right into another tour with Strike Anywhere, which was a band we all loved so that, much. That was the Could, that was the best piece yeah to interrupt your train of thought that was actually yeah. where i first met
1: like because i mean i you know i knew of you guys by that point but like you when you play chain reaction with strike anywhere that's where bill came up to me and was like dude you're right from taken and then i was like i really yeah and so that that was kind of how i heard <laughs> that's how basically i got brought into your guys's orbit where i was like oh yeah not only these dudes like you know fans of taken or whatever like i knew that but like i didn't know you guys as individuals but yeah that's so funny i love that <laughs>
2: Yeah, but but I remember so so we'd been touring for pretty much well it'd been over a year and hadn't made a dime you know, and I remember we had it was the end of the tour and we had and I counted up all the money and we had seven thousand dollars um I remember that number because i left it in a hotel room <laughs> that's how i remember that that was the number in, in a silver briefcase that we used to carry around i don't know why we thought that was a good idea like i think we thought we were cool yeah. you know carrying it around in, in, in something that obviously looked like the, like a briefcase full of money uh yeah but i left it in a motel six i'm gonna just gonna say it was in Dallas. It was, it was a major, a major city somewhere in in the South. And I remember, you know, this is before there was any kind of cell phones. We didn't have anything like that. Mm -hmm. So we, we (laughs) I didn't know, I knew I left it, you know, you have that realization where you're like, Oh my God, where's the, where's the briefcase? Did you, did you grab it? No. And I'm like, it's under the bed in the hotel room. Oh my God. And we've been, I've already been driving for, I don't know like an hour and a half probably. But the thing was, is the night before we just driven and grabbed like any motel six that we saw, you know, cause they were all like, whatever, like 49 bucks. So I couldn't remember which one. So we had a motel six, Directory in our van, which had like the there's probably 1500 Motel Sixes in America, so I had to go through Dallas and all the suburbs and call each one, and then finally like I, I a bunch of them were like uh, what briefcase what B- band, and then after probably like the sixth or seventh one, I called the people were like yep we got it I'm like okay we're coming back, and I, I walked in and and it's kind of good that we had a briefcase that locked because at least they didn't know that it was $7,000 in there. Cause if we put it in just like a gym bag or something, right. It they could easily open. So yeah. yeah. So, so there you go. That, that's always the, the, the bittersweet nature of, uh, of what, you know, I, I do and have done for 15 years is, is, Oh, look, something good happened. Oh, something terrible happened <laughs> directly afterwards <laughs> Dude, that's amazing. I love, yeah, that it,
1: you saying that, that really triggers the idea of like, once you started to like actually have cold, hard cash in your van and then you had to start a, you know, you had to figure out ways to like, you know, either depositing it at a bank or like figuring out the logistics of like how you can take care of that money. Cause like, you know, you're, you're a child, you don't have any real idea of like what to do with that money. So it makes sense where you're like, yeah, I'm going to put that in a silver briefcase.
2: <laughs> yeah. We used to do this thing where every time we had a thousand dollars that I guess we like above our float we would take the thousand dollars and put it in an envelope and seal it (laughs) and then that was our way of depositing it in some weird way i guess we knew that that nobody could like you know either go in and just be like hey i need i need you know 10 bucks for an energy drink or something ridiculous it was like that's our way of putting it away but it was it was so stupid because obviously we didn't you know i don't know (laughs) it was so ridiculous that, that that was our mentality but the other thing was we're Canadian, so when we're on a tour for six weeks in, in America, like none of us have bank accounts, and we didn't have the savviness to figure out how to get an American bank account. Uh, and, and you know, post nine eleven, th- they were worried about terrorism and all that stuff, and you couldn't just send money across the border anymore. And you still can't. Mm-hmm. It's still a problem. It's still a problem, to be honest. So, so yeah, that that is, you know, that's a real thing that happened. Carrying around a lot of money in a anyone could smash it if they knew what was in there it'd be very easy just to just smash the window and open the door and be like jackpot you know totally just a cut yeah a couple couple
1: grand from like you know some dumb late teens early 20s kids just you know trying to try to sell merch and you know making 150 dollars a show where it's like oh you know especially too When you, you know, you're, you're taking all of these things as far as like, you know, merch and like, essentially it's all on credit. Like, you know, you have to pay that back once you return and you know, that sort of money where like, like, you know, the squirreling away of a thousand dollars in each um, envelope, you know, that, that is a way to, you know, obviously signify like, we can't touch that because that is like, that's really not even our money because we have to pay, you know, booking agent management, all that other stuff. Like that's not even real money. That's just money that goes out immediately.
2: No, no totally and, and we've always been a band that's been aware of that uh, we've always paid our you know paid our debts on time and uh, you know that stuff's always been we've always been really good about that but I mean we've also you know it also took us only a year to be able to start being like holy shit we're actually making money whereas a lot of bands are years and years and years go by and they get home and they say huh I made fifteen dollars a day yeah. <laughs> for the last, you know, three, four, five weeks. And it's like, great, now what? Okay. I eat Taco Bell on the road, I'm gonna eat Taco Bell at home, because that's all I can afford. Totally, yeah.
1: <laughs> it it is especially crushing when you do, like you said, kind of parse it out in your head of the time invested versus time earned. And like, I, you know, I so distinctly remember myself when I was going through, when I did that sound and fury festival for a couple of years, it was one of those things where, you know, at the end of it, there was this lump sum money where it's like, you know, whatever, 10 grand, 15 grand, whatever it was. But then, you know, I'm dividing that with another partner and then I'm also yeah. dividing it, like you said, you know, if you're looking at the time spent on it, like, I mean, it, not only is it below minimum wage, but you're just like, yeah, I, I think it's literally like a dollar an hour, you know, like it just doesn't, like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. When, for, for, for you guys, like when, you know, as you started to kind of, you know, come up and start to have those moments of like you were saying, you know, the, the from our nashes and strike anywhere tours, like as you started to, you know, like come home with, with, uh, with actual cash, like, do you remember any more of those sort of anecdotal moments of like, oh, wow, like, you know, this is either the highest sort of guarantee that we are getting, it, not even really, maybe on like a headlining run or something like that, um, but something where it was like, it, it felt like not only from a, you know, kid showing up at the show perspective, but a business perspective that it really felt like, oh, geez, I like, I didn't think that we were, were here, but I, I guess we are here.
2: Totally. I have so many, you know, interesting stories and th- things I think about. But one of my favorite is, is it was beginning of 2006 and we had jumped on the Taste of Chaos tour. And this was kind of the point the, this this year was the, the year that the Deftones headlined. Mm hmm. So they'd already done the kind of really bigger iconic ones where they had the used in my chemical romance and headline. And this was when they were, you know, kind of just, just getting their stride. But I mean, the tour wasn't going to last much longer and you know, that was in arenas. So the tour had already been going on for probably three or four weeks and we jumped on just to do the Canadian dates and we, we didn't open, but we were very early on the bill. I think it was like Dredge was the opening band and then us. And then I remember after us was like uh, As They Lay Dying played and Thrice and Thursday and Atreyu and then Deftone. So those, those were the bands and we knew some of them, but we were still, you know, a, a newer band. We hadn't really gotten too much hype yet. Our, our kind of our second record had just gotten a little bit, so we rolled in, and the first show was in Vancouver or somewhere on the Canadian West Coast. So you know they set us up, and we had merch restrictions where we were only allowed to sell, I think, two or three shirts, shirt designs, and Deftones. You know had this wall of merch, so we weren't exactly we were pretty low on the totem pole and not getting a ton of respect. So I remember. That was when it hit me like, okay, people care about my band because we were selling shirts when we were playing because we were playing so early in the bill. We were playing, and there was a lineup of people buying our merch, right? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. No, you're like, right? why, why are you not watching us? We're literally playing, our, yeah. yeah. Our merch guys, are like, they have a 25 minute set, like, go get in there, you can get the shirt later. What are you doing? And so, you know, as many, you know, industry people listening to this and probably a lot of non-industry people listening to this know, bands have to pay what's called a merch rate. So, you know, it's usually in a bigger venue, it it could be 20, even 25%. Um, And a lot of times with a, a festival, you know, style, one merch guy, usually the headliner, will collect from all the bands and then they'll pay the venue. And the thing about merch rate is that everyone lies about it? So no, unless they count every shirt that you bring in the venue, nobody actually pays what they say. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if, if anyone's ever spoken about that on the record, but that's true. Yeah. you know, if you could, like, if you could get like, no, around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, but at the same time, I think when you're doing something like that, whether it's uh, something like Warp Tour or whatever, everyone's in on it together. So we never lie about our numbers when it's like. What did you do? Hey, what did you do? Oh, what did we do? Okay, we did this much. Okay, well, this is what we're gonna tell the the man, you know. So the Deftones merch guy came up to our merch guy on the first day and said, uh, "Hey, um, uh, w- what did you guys sell, uh, you know, for the merch guy?" So our merch guy says, "Oh, we did like 15. and he and he says, 15. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Uh, just uh, just give me uh, just give me a hundred hundred bucks is fine." And our merch guy goes, Okay. Right. Gives him a hundred bucks. So the next day we roll into Calgary or whatever. Same thing. People are in line buying merch. It's like crazy. We can't believe it. And uh (laughs) and the merch and it wasn't as big a show as as Vancouver the night before. And uh our merch guy uh same thing comes up, the the DevTones guy comes up and he goes, Oh what did you what did you do? He goes, Oh, we did a little bit less, we did like nine. And he goes, nine, you guys look busy, like only 900 bucks? He's so, like, no, no, 9,000. <laughs> and he goes, what? i are like, yeah. Not, and, and he's what did you do yesterday? We're like 15,000. He's like, you did 15,000. And we had beaten Deftones wow. in merch then. Sure. And and, and and only paid $100 in merch rate as well. And I think that that was, sorry for the long winded story, but that was when we were like doing, you know, upwards of 10, 15. I think in Toronto and Montreal, we did like 20,000 in merch. And it was like crazy, you know, just having this little tiny trailer full uh, of t shirts, you know, filled up to the top and having a shipment every day. It was that was crazy, yeah crazy we'll that and
1: especially especially too I, I don't think there's anything more interesting than being on a tour, and like either you're in the situation where you're in where you know you're playing with these you know legendary bands, and you know you're yeah. you're selling more merch and like you know maybe you're having you know you're drawing younger kids to the show, and everything of why people would want a band like Silverstein on a show like that is exactly what's happening, but then on the flip side, it's also interesting when you're like you know, maybe you're the headliner and you're watching this other band kind of like just meteorically rise of like, and the headliner's like, oh, we shouldn't headline it anymore. And then you try to figure out how that, that could possibly be switched, you know, in the middle of a tour because this band is blowing <laughs> up and like you can't even. Like I, yeah. I, I remember with, uh, I was on tour with Makoto and we were on tour with Calico System on Eulogy mm-hmm. Records and Chiodos, mm-hmm. and this was Chiodos like on the first you know Equal Vision yeah. record, and it Calico System was headlining, and it was like you know we we had done like three dates in California, and it was very much that scenario of just like oh my god, like Chiodos is doing you know like two thousand dollars in merch a night, and all of these children are here to see them, and Calico System is like we cannot play last, like there's a difference between headlining and playing yeah. last, and we are playing last right now, and but yeah, like to your point of just that that feeling of like oh my gosh, and just watching that kind of swirl around feels really, really weird.
2: Yeah, and, and it wasn't, I don't think we were anywhere near, not, you know, I don't want people to think that I thought we were bigger than Deftones. No, are, no, no, no. Or we, we weren't even, we weren't even, you know, drawing that many people. I just think it was that every single person we'd never really played on the East coast to West coast of Canada before. So every single person that came out, had never seen this before. And they just wanted a fucking t-shirt to be cool, you know, or whatever. I think that that was more what it was because we sure we have, we have nights we do really well in merch, but to, to be doing, to be doing 15 to 20 every night is a lot of money. Uh, and I would love to do fifteen to twenty grand a night now, uh, you know. Yeah, but but I, I love that, and, and it's funny that you bring up the you know the Chiodos thing. I forget who I had on my podcast, but somebody said that the same thing happened, and it was Panic at the Disco was playing first, <laughs> right? And halfway through the tour, they're all over MTV, you know, on uh, TRL and all that, and it's like we got to do something, like you know, we got to do something because people are not going to stick around for. For us, yeah, it's like the you
1: know when when the plans were hatched six months ago, things were very different. And then now that we're in the reality, it's like oh, we got to figure this out. Like you know, yes, we'll take you know a thousand dollars less a night on our guarantee because we we just we we don't want to play in front of four people at the end of the night. That just feels not only wrong, but it's you know it's a little sad when you're in that position and you're like I just want to play in front of some people. Capitalize on this.
2: Oh, t- oh, totally. And my friend, my buddy. um hosted just yesterday and then I'm going to pull it up cause it's, it's so good to talk about with. And it's one of those, you know, old, like a weekly magazine. He's from Ohio. He's from Columbus, Ohio. And you know, it's this is from, well, it's from 2006. I know because I remember, uh, some of these tours and you know, it has the bands that who is headlining who is playing under them. And, you know, seeing some of these ones here, um, you know, uh, like, And some of the bands that have fallen by the wayside, but here, here's one that goes to what I was saying. This is the Academy Is with with Panic at the Disco, Acceptance, and Hello Goodbye. That was the tour that happened. Nice Panic of the Disco playing under the Academy Is. But my favorite on here is this tour. Is the headliner is the Veronicas with October Fall and Jonas Brothers. Wow, (laughs) so crazy. the Jonas Brothers and this is 06 February 11th 06 at the basement in Columbus Ohio and that and that was like I didn't even know the Jonas Brothers were actually a band that did like touring tours. right you know what I mean yeah.
1: totally totally yeah you feel so, you feel like these these you know bands or artists that just you know uh, have so much cachet because of the other things that they've done. Like, you know, they don't need to exist in the scene and, you know, play DIY shows. And then like, it's like, Oh no, like some people have to do that. <laughs> and it, it for a good reason, because otherwise they'll probably be terrible if they, you know, play TRL or for first show. <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's just, it's a wild, wild thing. Um, and so, you know, like most people, especially from like a, a, a touring perspective, um, you know, you see, and I know I've seen in the past as well, um, a lot of bands are, you know, irresponsibly spending on, um, not only their own personal expenses, but then when it comes to, you know, tour budgets and when you're working on like, all right, how much crew are we going to take out? Um, yeah. you know, how, like, should we, travel on a bus or a van and like, you know, those sort of things, um, you know, how, like, and you guys, you know, like you've mentioned previously, and it, it's evidence of you guys still existing as a band, uh, that, you know, you've been very frugal and have made, uh, you know, good moves from that perspective, um, you know, can you can you name an instance where you were, you know, you guys were really wrestling around with a certain decision in regards to like, you know, the tour budget? Like, oh, should we do this? Should we do that? Um, and then, kind of on the flip side a, um, you know, a poor decision you guys made mm-hmm. was like, Oh, we ended up doing this. And then like, now we ended up regretting it for one reason or another. It doesn't have to be particularly for finances
2: per se, but um. right, right. Well, it's, it all comes down to finances, That's everything true. that you do pretty much in a band. But the, the, my favorite of all these things is, is I'm sure I know you know what it is. And most people listen to this in the industry know what a bandwagon is and bandwagons haven't existed very long. You know, they're kind of like for people that don't know, they're like small buses. They kind of have all the good things about a bus, like they have a shower and you have bunks and a place to sleep, but they're not super big and they're pretty bumpy and they're not the best. Buses are much better, but they're also considerably cheaper. But before bandwagons existed, you pretty much were either in a full on bus where you got a driver, you have to pay and pay overdrives and pay for their hotel and then all all the fuel and everything. Uh, or you're in a van, which is you're driving yourself, there's nowhere to lay down, you know, it's a van. And those were the options. So, you know, as as all bands with, with the, you know, veteran bands like Silverstein, they go through ups and downs. And we've, I guess we're, can be proud to say we haven't done a van tour since 2005. We've either done buses or bandwagons since then. But we've got to a point where we, sort of realized that we were going to do a bus tour and we weren't going to make any fucking money, you know, because we were supporting, I don't remember who it was. Sure. Are you there, Ray? I am. Sure. You're there. You were so quiet. It was like, am I talking to myself for five minutes? No. And, uh, so, so we ran the budgets and we were with this company called Northern gold. They were a small bus company and they're great, great people. And they only had three or four buses, as I recall. But what we liked about them is they used to make us bread and soup every morning. The driver would wake up and make bread and soup in the morning. It was great. That's amazing. So, right. So we ran the budgets and it was like, oh, man, like, do we really want to go back to a van? Because you get to a certain level of comfort and it's hard to go back. And this was 2010. And what's the point of this whole story is, Silverstein was actually the first band ever to be on a bandwagon. We were the first band because this company, Northern Gold, turned into bandwagon. And I'll never forget the email I got from Paul that said it was was subject line, weird bus. And it was this, it was a bandwagon. And it looked pretty much the same as they look now. And we said, huh, okay, well, I don't know. Let's give this a shot. So uh, we, this company kind of, we were the guinea pigs the first ever bandwagon and that would have been in 2010 and we uh that's amazing yeah so (laughs) so and it's funny because because we've you know we've still taken uh taken those things out and and, you know for years and years and years and they are pretty solid and i wish we got the grandfathered in rate from 2010 we do not but uh But yeah, Yeah. there's another interesting tidbit. We're the first band to be on a bandwagon.
1: Oh, yes. Our good friends Casper are here to tell you about how awesome their mattress is. But no, that's not their job. That's my job because I legit love my Casper. Now, what are they? It is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. So they have three models, the original Casper, which is what I have, the Wave, and the Essential. Their mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry, not to mention super breathable design, helps you sleep cool, regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and is delivered to your door in a small, how do they even fit that in there, sized box free shipping and returns in the U S and Canada. The best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100 night risk-free sleep on it trial. After all, you spend one third of your life sleeping. So you should be comfortable. I love my Casper. I've loved my Casper ever since I've got it. I sleep so soundly on it. My wife sleeps soundly on it. Anytime my son sneaks into the bed with us, he sleeps soundly, but real talk, Casper is the best. I anytime anybody asks me about my mattress, my mattress experience, I'm like, that you don't even need to look in any other direction besides Casper. So get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting Casper.com slash words and using words at checkout. That's Casper.com slash words, offer code words, and I will give you fifty dollars off your first mattress purchase. Terms and conditions, of course, apply, but Casper is the best. Casper.com slash words. I love them. They'll make you sleep better, okay? Now on with the show. And kind of the second part of the question of like, is there a decision that you guys made that you were like, retroactively, it would have been like, oh, wow, I wish we would have handled that uh, differently. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's obviously a lot, but um, you know, something that kind of pops out in your head.
2: I I think anytime we've taken a support tour and then we've got there and realized we should have been headlining it or the headlining band wasn't worth anything, Uh, and I don't want to throw anybody under the bus specifically Um, but again I guess the statute of limitations uh, as you say I could probably at least talk about one incident and this was actually right before that Taste of Chaos tour we had taken the Take Action tour which was which is funny because it's on this list I just talked about and it was Matchbook Romance was the headlining band Mm. and we we were direct support and also early November was there Amber Pacific. I remember Paramore was on a few shows, which is funny. And that was when, where we got there and we, we were playing direct support second last and everyone was leaving after we were playing mm-hmm. and we were only getting paid like a thousand bucks a show or something like that. And everybody was leaving and it was like, we were you know, still our friends with matchbook romance and we felt bad, but what are you supposed to do? We're not going to switch places. We're like, well, okay, we'll, we'll play last, but, we're gonna to have to switch money too, you know. Totally. So it was, that was one of those very you know awkward awkward decisions. And looking back now, I think when you do that, I think every band that attains a certain level of success that has to happen at some point in their touring career. If it doesn't happen, well, you're either a genius or really lucky, or, yeah. or you're probably not taking up as many opportunities as you should so that happened to us a few times, but at the time we felt like it was a regret and we felt like, what are we doing here? This is stupid. We, we should be on tour with this band or this bigger band that we get in front of their fans. You know, what is our manager doing or what is our, why isn't our label fighting for us? And, but now looking back, I think that those are necessary steps and it's good to be, sometimes it's good
1: to be that kind of underdog. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting that you bring up that tour because I think that, that example is kind of a confluence of events because I think if I'm not mistaken, that was the last year the Take Action Tour put something out. And, you know, from a previous whatever, you know, three or four year run where it was successful, if not a little bit longer. But like you always you run into those, you know, package branded tours that, you know, are are hot for you know year after year. And then eventually it hits a wall where it's like, okay, either the package doesn't make sense, and like you know, like you were saying, right. headliners are not as strong. And then all of a sudden, everybody has to like reevaluate and figure it out. So like that, you know, <laughs> that was just what you guys experienced, where it was like, oh yeah, like maybe just kids aren't coming to these type of shows anymore. Like no,
2: you know, you know, it wasn't that the, sh- the kids were coming out. We, we, the shows okay. were great. I mean, we, we played the House of Blues in Orlando. It's a big, you know bigger House of Blues. It was sold out the problem was after we played everybody left everybody left yeah sure you know and and we we were like oh great well we're we're playing we're doing a headline tour basically but only playing for 40 minutes and not getting paid <laughs> nearly what we should so that was more of the the issue you know right uh but no actually taste of chaos that was kind of i'd say the heyday no okay. and there were many take actions after that and uh Oh, it takes, oh, you mean Taste of Chaos?
1: No, 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 no. Well, you said Taste of Chaos, but I was like, "Oh, take action!" So that because that was wh- what year was that? The, was that two thousand
2: two thousand six. Two thousand six. Uh, okay, so yeah, I guess it yeah, did I mean, go for. We another. ended up doing Take Action again in two thousand eleven. We co-headlined with uh, Bayside. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. So I don't know how many years they ran Take Action, or I think it came, it left for a bit, it came back. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if the branded tour thing works anymore, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, no, it's it is uh, yeah, it's really tough because <laughs> I, I think that it, it, I mean that was such a in vogue thing to do in the early 2000s and mid2000s. And then um, yeah, I think people, um, especially because you know each band and you know record label or whatever promotional arm, to promote the tours like, you know, they're just as strong as brands, but you know, everybody kind of viewed a brand as being like, Oh, well they're going to be the one that's like doing a lot of marketing for a tour beyond just us. So it's like, here's this other entity that will help bring people to the show. And then, yeah. Then then when people were inventing brands out of nowhere where it's like, Oh, let's just name this tour something cool. And then we'll do it again. It's like, well, yeah, you're just making something up out of nothing, well, you know, which is how most things start. But, um, <laughs>
2: but yeah, <laughs> no, we were the, and we were also the band that they branded scream it. Like you mean it around, that was our thing the first year we did. And that's coincidentally, that's the, uh, the, the first tour we had the bandwagon for. So, uh, you know, back in 2010, but I, I know what you mean.
1: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, that's right. I, t- I totally forgot "Scream It like you mean it, that I, <laughs> there's somebody. yeah do you remember cool the cool tour do you remember that I do, I do remember the cool tour <laughs> yeah. what the hell branding is that cool tour and dude, <laughs> I did, and it just shook loose in my head too they had that was it the the 10 for 10 tour where it was like 10 bands for yeah. 10, 10 bucks and it was like you know obviously all like hardcore bands but yeah that was cool that, that was one, cool yeah and it was like you know someone's taking a bath on it but like you know that's cool like yeah <laughs> I don't know how yeah. how
2: would you do that
1: I, Man, I that's, you, that's you so much Taco Bell dollar menu
2: is being eaten on that tour.
1: Well, I think it was basically probably just a bunch of sponsors underwriting it, you know, where it's like, okay, this is how the bands are actually going to get paid because they're not going to get paid from the door, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Uh, the, uh, the last two things I wanted to kind of bring up before I let you go sure. was the... Um, you know the uh, kind of like what we were sort of dancing around earlier, where you know what what sort of numbers stick out in your head, where you know like you were saying the sort of you know whatever the seven thousand dollars you bought at a hotel or you know the the fifteen thousand dollars you guys did in merch at Taste of Chaos. Like, do you have any other kind of numbers if, if, if from like a guarantee perspective, um, yes yeah. or, or something that was kind of like you said where it was just surprising to you guys. Cause you know, I, from all that I know of you as individuals, like, you know, you are, have a, uh, a healthy ego about yourselves. And like, I mean that where it's like, you can make fun of yourselves and then you can also be like, Oh wow. Like I'm, I'm so glad we're doing this, you know? Um, so <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm giving you that window. So it's like, you know, you can, you can, uh, humble brag about <laughs> a certain thing like where it's like, Oh wow. Like I can't believe that we got that, uh, or we, or we did this thing in particular.
2: Yeah, no, a few things come to mind. I think at one point early in our career we played at uh, the Starlight Ballroom in New Jersey and we had the highest guarantee of of the tour and it was I think it was a, it was $17,500. Was I think the guarantee which, you know, for us to do a headline show was, you know, great and a lot of money and I was nervous because I was like that's a lot. I like really don't want someone to like lose their ass, you know, yeah. for our band. <laughs> totally. You know, like, like I, I was nervous about it. And the, the, it's a weird, I don't know if you've ever been to Starlight Ballroom. It's a weird venue. Cause it, when you walk in there, you'd never be like, Oh yeah, this is a 2,500 cap room. Like it doesn't feel like it, it feels very small. Mm-hmm. And I remember we didn't sell the show out, but we, we did like, like what I thought was really good. Like, I think we did like 1900 tickets which was a lot of tickets mm-hmm. and I remember the promoter was actually like bummed out. Like, yeah, you only did 1900. It's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like you only did 1900. Like they really wanted it to be a, you know, sold out show or, you know, and that was when I got into the, the point where it's like but fun, It's funny how the expectations can vary so much, you know, like, Oh, 1900 tickets, on any day ever is, is great for our band. But you know, if, uh, I don't know, pick a pick a band, Deftones go out and there's only 1900 people there. That might be like terrible. And there might be people losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, um, on, on any given show. So yeah, I I remember that one, that one specifically (laughs) being, um, (laughs) being memorable, I I guess. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's funny. I think Silverstein, we haven't taken, we haven't had as many of those real crazy ones because we've never been the band that broke up and then came back. And when you're the band that breaks up and comes back, that's when you get the crazy money. And to be honest, that's why a lot of bands come back. You know, they'll. I've heard of bands playing the Montebello you know rock fest up in you know quebec canada mm-hmm. and reforming and like having six figures thrown at them when the most they ever got paid when they were together was probably no more than four or five thousand dollars and they're getting like a hundred hundred grand to reform at a festival so that's to me is the weirdest
0: in a world where everyone is confined to their homes society begins its largest bin watch to date Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: No, totally, especially where you're like, you know, the band never commanded anywhere near that sort of like guarantee perspective um, at all, like when they existed. And of course, the nostalgia factor is a is a huge thing. But yeah, it, it, that notion of like, you know, even on a smaller scale, like I know, that you know there are many bands like you know the sort of local like uh, pay to play scene that exists in pretty much every city like I, I knew it existed but like it wasn't until I you know like when I started to play with Makoto where it was like you know, we like there was a, a a quantifiable commodity that we brought to the table, the fact that like, you know, some people were like, Oh yes, like, you know, here's Ray from Taken's new band or whatever. And so like, you know, people will be curious and come out or whatever. But I just remember it's like these venues would approach us, these local venues, and give us an absurd amount of money, like for a local show. It's like, Hey, we'll give you guys fifteen hundred dollars to play like five minutes down the street and it was like, What the heck like I just hadn't experienced that before. I was like the most taken guy paid to play was, like, you know, like, maybe $1,000, and that's, if we're, like, you know, headlining chain reaction, selling it out, or whatever, but um, I, I just, that notion of getting paid that much, but then, once I understood the finances of it, I was, like, oh, it's not like the venue is paying this, it's these bands that want to play with a, quote, unquote, cool national headlining app, whatever, whatever, pitch they yeah. have you know it's like I mean Silverstein could 100% be the same thing where it's just like if you guys wanted to be like all right you know what like we're done really actively touring like you know we could probably milk the Toronto scene for a good year Not <laughs> but you know what I'm saying where it's like people would like oh dude like you know Silverstein we can play with Silverstein tonight <laughs> like, we have to sell 100 tickets
2: to play with them or whatever oh uh, yeah no we haven't done too much of that I mean there's there's always you know local bands jumping on a tour package You know, if there's a four or five band bill and then there's a local opener, the promoter stuck on there and and made them sell 50 to 100 tickets. I I never liked that, but it it definitely does exist. And it's something that you have to kind of live with sometimes. But, yeah, that's funny. No, we we have an interesting uh, scene, you know, here in Ontario where we can do things like that. And we have in the past – Like, let's say we've been off for a little while and we're like, shit, you know, we need to like just make some money to to pay some bills. Um, You know, we have to pay our insurance for this for this year or something like funny like that. And we'll do what's what we call the 401 tour, because the 401 is um, not the 401k, but 401 is is the main highway (laughs) that runs through Ontario, you know, kind of like the five in California and, uh, so our 401, so we'll, we'll go and we'll play like, all right, play, drive, drive like 45 minutes, you know, drive hour and a half play like, and we'll do all these kind of like, you know, shitty shows. Uh, and sometimes it's like, okay, well, Hey, you know, if, if the bartender or sorry, the bartender, if the venue is selling drinks and 200, 250 people come out, that's a lot of drinks and you know if you're talking about a $20 ticket that's decent amount of money coming in the door for us to drive whatever an hour or two from our house do the show go back sleep in our own beds I mean that can be pretty financially sound uh, to to do that, and we have because we're smart. You right? Know? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Right. You, you take. Right. That- I mean, people people shake their head and go, "Oh, what? They're playing Chatham, or they're playing uh, Waterloo, or or Saint Catharines. Like, what are these places? Like, you know, well, they're not playing Toronto, or they're not playing London, or you know, these bigger cities that national bands go to. But it's like, dude, if if you could go. Let's, let's say you know you work at a Home Depot, but you could go to a Home Depot an hour away, and someone's going to give you I don't know <laughs> Free five thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're going to say, oh, I don't know, man. That's that's like that's lame. That's not you know that's not cool. I'm right. not going to do that. You know, come on. Yeah,
1: and to your point too, and I know you've experienced this where it's like sometimes the shows in the you know secondary or tertiary markets. Are better because kids are starved for entertainment and you know connection and like when you go to you know whatever Wilmington Indiana or you know whatever name some random town it, it like people are uh, you know that much more excited about it because it's like oh what are you gonna do on a Thursday night I'm gonna go to this show it's like who's playing that doesn't matter
2: <laughs> it's just that's the thing to do you know oh totally and and now that I'm a Windsor Ontario resident. Uh, I'm definitely seeing that where I'm like, we had broken social scene playing the other day here and I'm like, that's crazy. Broken social scene is playing. Like maybe I'll go. And then I think to myself, why would I like, I'm I'm from pro, I could have seen broken social scene. I think I've I've seen them a couple times, but it's like all of a sudden I'm like so excited about some band that I don't, to be honest, don't really listen to. Uh, you know, uh, coming through the town just because now I'm a part of this smaller community or music scene that's that starved, you know, uh, yeah. who else, who else is coming? Three days grace is coming to the casino. I'm like, Oh, that's sick. Three days grace. And then I'm like, wait a second. I fucking hate three days grace. <laughs> Why do I care about this band coming? So you you make a, you make a great point, uh, about, you know, about, uh, about that. And it's true. Well, I
1: think, I mean, I think any band that experiences, the, the touring that we have and did the, you know, first couple of years of our bands where right? it's like, you know, when you're, you know, working with people just to get shows anywhere and you just want to play in front of some people, you find that those memorable shows are in those places. It's not like, you know, I mean, yes, you're stoked to play New York city or, you know, LA or whatever, right. but you do find that those, you know, those communities that spring up around small towns of like, Oh yeah! No matter what, you're gonna have 50 kids that show up to the show, you know, in South Texas or whatever, and it's yeah. like, And those and those are the ones that you that are gonna stick out in your head, where it's like, especially as you're like climbing up and trying to get people to like recognize you, you know.
2: Totally, man. <laughs> and that was that we always look forward to the small ones, you know. <laughs> totally. You you go you roll into CBGB in uh, in New York City, and and you know you're there, and the bartender's a total asshole to you, and. <laughs> Yeah. You know, sucks is a prick, and the promoters doesn't even care you're there. <laughs> and uh, oh, you guys are oh wait, you're a you're a punk band. Oh, okay, cool, whatever. You roll into Burlington, Iowa, and it's like oh my god, you guys are a punk band. That's so cool, right? Like oh, you know, everyone's so excited that you're there. Uh, and and inevitably, sometimes in the early days, there were more people at the shows in, in Burlington, Iowa, just because than New York City because there's just so much so much less to do. And it's, it was, it really is funny.
1: Yeah. You, you, and you could in, you know, Burlington, Iowa, you could legit go to the local mall and like straight up advertise for your show, like just by simply hanging out at the mall because you looked different (laughs) and people were like, "What what's up with these guys? And like, it's so, yeah, it is so interesting how that kind of, you know, the weirdness and the, you know, you don't look like you belong here will attract people to the thing like, yeah. Oh, are you guys a band? Are, are you playing? Are you playing in town tonight? Oh, cool. I'll bring, I'll bring some of my friends. And it's like, wow, we just were killing time
2: before the show. So like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, always a funny moment too when you're at a truck stop in the middle of nowhere and they, someone sees the van and you know, you always, ah oh, y'all in a band. Right. And so <laughs> we, used to, we used to say, we used to say we were good Charlotte. Perfect. Because we knew they, we knew they'd heard heard of Good Charlotte probably at the time, and then we oh, know, like, oh, Good Charlotte, yeah, I think my daughter listens to y'all, and uh, yeah, we used to do that. Oh, that's that's perfect because the the science of
1: that uh, is you have to think of a band that, it, like you said, is large enough where they may have potentially run across them at some point, but not large enough to where. Um, you know, people will like automatically not believe you. they will be like, well, no, you, you're obviously not Pink Floyd or Metallica or whatever. <laughs>
2: right.
1: Exactly. And, exactly yeah. and, then you, and you don't want to aim too low where you're
2: like, oh yeah, we're silver seed. They're like, who? You're like, damn it. Uh, never mind." <laughs> <laughs> and there's funny times too. Like, like I remember walking out of a, out of a, you know, I've been sleeping in the back of the van and I walk out and I'm wearing like skinny jeans and a studded belt And probably have some blonde streak in my hair and some tight ass shirt with like fluorescent stuff on it. And I walk out and the sun's in my eyes and this old man says to me, hey, y'all on a fishing expedition? (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? Look at me, dude. Yeah. No, we're not on a fishing expedition. (laughs) I, I I could be
1: furthest from a fishing expedition, my friend. If you think this is the gear for a fishing expedition, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs)
2: that happened. Yeah.
3: Uh,
1: the last thing, the last thing I want to hit you with was the, um, you know, clearly as you have existed now, like you said, as, you know, as a full-time band for, you know, quite some time and, you know, you've been able to, uh, you know, afford some of the luxuries of like you were talking about, you know, not having to go back into a van and, you know, you guys have been, uh, Thrifty in regards to the way that you spend your money and you're economical, um, but I know that you undoubtedly still encounter those sort of business decisions that uh, you know kind of leave you guys either you know oh like three of the guys want it, two of the guys don't, or yeah. or flip it. Um, so what what sort of decisions that you guys have to like really make now? Like, do you feel because of what you've experienced, you're better equipped, or do you feel like you're still just those you know dumb eighteen year old kids making? Uh, you know, newer decisions that are different than what you previously made, um, or is it some combo of both?
2: I think it's you got to think about. You know, when you're headlining and stuff, that stuff's you know, you know you're going to get paid and you know you're going to make money and that's going to be fine. Uh, and if you're doing festivals and stuff, you know, you have to make sure you're going to make it work. And if you can't make it work financially, if you're going to either make very little money or a lot less money than, you know, let's say your own personal minimum wage that you require to pay your bills, then you have to look at what you're doing as, as an investment for a future, you know? Uh, and this happens a lot with certain festivals and stuff, you know, uh, in Europe, especially where one festival is like saying, Hey, you know, this is a cool hardcore festival and you can headline this and we're going to pay you a good amount of money. And then the next day you're going to play this huge festival with all these like indie rock bands and you're going to be on the hardcore stage, but you're going to get paid peanuts to be there, you know, and you have to, you know, uh, work that out to where financially you can do enough of the hardcore festivals that you can get paid and make it work. But then you can also go and do some of these other festivals to hopefully, you know, invest in the future and have more people see you and have the exposure um, you know, that you, that you need. And um, the other thing is with uh, support tours, and it's the same thing. And I remember it was last year. it's funny I'm bringing Good Charlotte up again. We got offered a Good Charlotte tour. and it was across Canada, which is Canada's is a really shitty place to tour because the cities are very, very far apart. And once you get to one end, well, you gotta go back and there's nowhere else to play. Yep. so so we had offered this Good Charlotte tour. And yeah, I didn't want to do it. Uh, Billy didn't want to do it, and Josh didn't care, which is typical of Josh if anybody knows him. <laughs> and and Paul Mark was sort of on the fence. He wanted you know wanted to, to hear the reasons, and Paul really wanted to do it. Really wanted to do it. Thought it was a good opportunity and everything. And the money was not great. So that was that was probably and most. That's the most recent recent thing where we had to decide well hey is getting into playing with good charlotte a band that i don't think we'd have any chance to play with 10 years ago is that a good move for us or not and ultimately we decided we would do the tour even though it was going to be financially a loss probably probably was a financial loss um for that kind of exposure and would we do it again well i wouldn't do it again um not that there's anything wrong with good charlotte they were lovely people we had a great time and the shows were good but i don't think we really got anything out of playing to 30 year olds you know uh mm-hmm. screaming in their faces when all they wanted to hear was lifestyles the rich and the famous <laughs> you know <laughs> so, yeah so th- those so those kinds of things um i guess this also goes to your question before about if we have any you know regrets or whatever you know so those kinds of things you have to wrestle with like okay, is this, is this going to make sense? And it's always great when you could do a support tour and get paid at the same time or a support tour that makes perfect sense. But, uh, it does happen a lot where you have to say, okay, is this exposure worth, you know, not making any money. And I think the reason we did the good Charlotte tour was because 10 years before, or I guess more than that now we took a tour with simple plan in Europe uh, and again, it was like not a lot of money and it's, you know, going to Europe. So there's all those expenses of of flights and, and everything else that you don't have when you're just doing, you know, for us, Canada. And that was really, really, really good for us. We, we, to this day, when we go to Europe, people say, oh, yeah, I saw you guys. First time I saw you guys was opening for Simple Plan and, you know, I never knew your kind of music existed. So I think we thought that maybe that would happen again. A part of us thought that would happen with good Charlotte and their younger fans but it turns out that there aren't as many young good Charlotte fans as we thought sure and honestly like
1: anytime you reach those those fork in the road moments where you know you you're really hemming and haw and having a lot of discussions about it and a lot of group texts about it and whatever right most of the time the only way that you know is like when you actually walk into that door and then you have that experience and then you try to, you know, cause like if you're referencing a tour that you did 10 years ago where it was like, you know, as a pro where it's like, well that kind of worked out for us, you know? And so like yeah. maybe this can, can resemble that. It's like, but you really truly won't know until you walk into that door and experience it and then be like, okay, well, you know, now that can be the anecdotal information that we use for the next, you
2: know, five years or whatever. Oh, no, absolutely. And I think that that's, something that always you know goes back i mean you just you you draw on your own experiences because the the this podcast that we're talking about this is as close to a handbook as you're ever going to find this is this is the, you know there's nowhere you can read about what to do in these situations you know no one's written a book there's no manual so you know you, you trial and error and you go back and you draw on your own experiences and you know every band is different every every uh Everybody has a different experience with with this kind of stuff.
1: Oh, oh, totally. And and I always like it. And people, you know, no, no matter how successful you are as a band or a creative person, You know, people will always look up, especially if you're older. People always look up to what you do and be like, "Oh, can you give me advice? Can you like tell me this thing?" And you'd be like, "Well, yeah. How about you like fail miserably for a long time, like suck at what you do for a long time, (laughs) and then like accidentally trip on? You know, like most of the successes that people have in in their lives aren't because they're like insanely talented and like you know thread the needle, like (laughs) or super lucky. Like that's a rare occurrence. So it's like, yeah, yeah, if you were to be like, all right, write me a write me a battle plan on silverstein." And it was just like, no, like that's impossible. I can't do that. I can offer general, generic advice, but that's it.
2: <laughs> oh, totally. And, and not to mention, it's funny when bands ask me specifically, like, hey, we're this new band. And, I, and what should we do? And I, I say, I don't fucking know. If you ask, <laughs> in 2001, I knew. I, I'd, I'd be able to tell you what to do in 2001, 2002. Right. But now, a new artist starting out? Yeah. God, I would, I wouldn't even know where to begin, man. Totally, yeah. It's it's impossible. It's like, yeah, this is a completely
1: different world, a completely different context. Like, I'm not a child anymore. Like, I can't, you know, I can't give you direction. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> it's, just, it's just the music industry just changed so much. It's it's unbelievable now. So yeah, for sure. I don't know. It's crazy, <laughs> yeah. crazy, and it's ever it's ever changing. And in, in a couple of years, uh, it'll be you know it'll be even different. So you just got to try to stay on top of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, Shane, this has been super fun. I really, uh, yeah,
2: I just always like, yeah, thanks, of course, man. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know. Yeah. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me. And, uh, I probably said too much, but Hey, that's the point. of these things. <laughs> oh
1: my, wasn't that a doozy? Yes, that was. I really enjoyed that. I felt it was the most appropriate episode to kind of kick this series off with and it just kind of you know sets the uh, sets the stage for all of the fun conversations I'll be bringing over the course of the next month and i promise you one of them will be the the mailbag episode that i've been promising for quite some time so i've got some really really good questions that i'm going to dig myself into and hopefully be able to uh, explain some things to you and uh, answer some questions and provide some insights and all that other fun stuff so but next week is my friend Wayne Pagini, he is a manager at uh, Fly South, or I think it's called Entertainment. Fly South, we'll call it. But uh, you know, they manage really small bands like uh, Paramore and uh, Day to Remember and whatever. But he he will introduce himself appropriately next week. But we talk about Ramstein. And Romstein, you know, some of you may be like, Romstein, why the hell are you going to talk about Romstein? Like, that's that old random industrial band that was popular at one point. Well, let me tell you, they're still immensely popular. And let me tell you, they're probably one of the best live shows I've ever seen in my whole entire life. And he was working when the band initially broke here in the United States of America in the uh, mid to late 90s. And it's a, he shares wild stories because, um, you know, granted this was a, a much different music industry than we exist in now, but, uh, there's just so much, uh, information that he shares about what it's like to work at a record label when a record is like becoming successful in ways that nobody ever imagined. So really, really fun stuff that is next week. And, uh, yeah, until then, please be safe, everybody.
3: Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you new insight into the magical art of songwriting as Tova is some of the best in the business and also the pioneers and the up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central, and join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.